Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern. I'm with Father Jeff Lewis and Father Kurt Nagel, and we're going to begin with a scripture reading and a prayer led by Father Nagel. And this is from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us rid ourselves of every burden and sin that clings to us and persevere in running the race that lies before us, while keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the leader and perfecter of faith. Gracious Lord, we do ask your blessings that in this beautiful month you've given us of August, through the intercessions of these saints, may we continue to draw closer to you and that we might run this race well, worthily, and with the sanctity you've offered to us. So bless this uh, short hour of um, sharing of faith that it might be instrumental in people's lives for that end. We ask this through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. I appreciate that. Father, have you ever been to the—there's uh, a, a priest who has this ministry of traveling relics. Ah. Uh, have you ever been to that? No, I've heard of it, and it's appeared in places in our archdiocese, but I have never actually been to that event. It's incredible. I've been a couple of times. Once at uh, Our Lady Star of the Sea several years ago, and then last year at the Cathedral of Our Lady of Lourdes over here. And— um, one of the things about the the way that these uh, relics are displayed is they create tables, and uh-huh. on the table they'll have like maybe about eight saints, like four on one side, then four on the other side. So you kind of go around the table. You go along. It's like eight foot tables, you know, along the length of it. And then you come around the corner. And you get on the other side. And one of the things that happens is that you get to a table and you're like oh my goodness, it's the little flower St. Therese. Look at that, next to her, uh, the great St. Teresa uh, of Avila. And, and you're thinking, oh, you can't beat this. And then you get to the next table and it's like, St. Paul, oh my <laughs> goodness, this is St. Paul. And look at this, St. Peter. And, and then you go around the corner and you hit the, and then you get the founders, St. Bonaventure and St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> and, and it's uh, just when you think you've reached the most amazing table, you then get to the next one. And and I got to tell you, I, there's a certain affection I have cert, towards certain of these tables with these different saints because of the, that sense of connection to them. Yeah, I kind of feel that way regarding the calendar of saints. When I think about the the entire year, August is is my favorite year. Really, I'll I'm sorry, fa- favorite month. My favorite month oh, of really? saints. Okay. Yeah, mine is yeah. October, by the way. Oh, is it really? I mine's I'm an okay. October guy. Okay, so I'm going to say, of course, you've got, well, you've got St. Francis, of course. And Teresa of Avila. Luke. Teresa of Avila, right. And um, I think it's St. Luke. I've always liked St. Luke. Yeah, St. Luke. And yep. I'm, now you're putting me under, I'm putting myself under pressure, and I, I can't think of, there's another one that's, oh. Anyway, anyway, I just know that it's, a, for me, it's always been a, a, a string. Of, it's kind of like the Hall of Fame. You know, you mentioned right now the, going to this event with these tables, now, obviously, this is the ultimate Hall of Fame, right? But if you go to the Baseball Hall of Fame, you go to Football Hall of Fame, you go to these various rooms and you see all these stars and you think, oh, yeah, you know, I used to watch him play. Or, but this is, you know, to the nth degree. And so I see something, you, you know, whether you're August, October, or December, you know, you might have your own favorites, but um, no month is without its superstars. Right. Yeah. So, Father Lewis, we're talking about these great calendar of saints and the different months have have the have some heavy hitters and i was using the analogy of the traveling traveling relic display and each table has on it certain heavy hitter saints and then you find your favorite table and i was saying august is my favorite month for the calendar of saints and we're going to talk about that today on the program the different saints feast days that we're going to hit uh between the day we are recording which is thursday the fourth all the way through um, Tuesday the 9th. And I'm sure we'll get through each of the feasts because, you know, we're really efficient that way. <laughs> well, Father, do you have a favorite month? Father Father uh, uh, Nagel likes October. Oh, yeah. Um, I like August uh, as well. I was hearing as I came in because, um, you know, we got some great saints later this month. We got uh, the Apostle St. Bartholomew. We got uh, St. Bernard, I think, later this month. And of course, you know, the patronal feast day of my parish is the Assumption. So you can't go wrong with Mary. And then the octave day of the Assumption is the Queenship of Mary. So Mary gets in there twice. And um, so anyway, um, yeah, August is one of my favorite months. And May is a good month, too. Um, mm. I think of May because uh, my uh, uh, the priest I was ordained on, St. Philip Neri, is in May. Mm-hmm. But we got some choice, uh, choice saints going on in May as well. Well, it's kind of like you can't go wrong. Like right. Father Nagel was saying, you're going to find heavy hitters in every every month. Right. Yeah. Right. 
So, but I, today on the program, we're going to dig into the saints that are in front of us. So we're recording this on Thursday the 4th, and St. John Vianney is today's feast day. Then tomorrow we have the dedication of St. Mary Major. Then on Saturday, the transfiguration of the Lord. Sunday, St. Cajetan. So probably the least among the, the folks that we'll discuss uh, for in terms of at least fame. Uh, and then St. Dominic on Monday. So you're hearing this today, folks, on the Feast of St. Dominic. And then I mean, we could just kind of keep rolling through the week. But if I just said, if we're going to stretch, let's at least stretch to Tuesday and get to St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. Mm. I don't know. Fathers, you think we're going to get through all of those? I think <laughs> we're going to get through. You can also throw on Sunday St. Sixtus II and his companions, who was the Pope when St. Lawrence was martyred, and he was one of his deacons. So we on could double up on Lawrence Sunday. Lawrence is the 10th. <laughs> Nice. And yeah. St. Lawrence the 10th. Is yeah. coming up, and then St. Clair of Assisi, and off we go. Mm-hmm. So I, we have to stop somewhere. Well, I think oh, we're going to get through the 4th at least, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's start with uh, the 4th, St. Saint John Marie Vianney. So, uh, fathers, I know a lot of, uh, the three of us know, but a lot of folks that are listening may not realize the importance of St. John Vianney for a diocesan priest. Uh, Father Lewis, why is St. John Vianney an important priest for, for you and for Father Nagel? Well, for a long time, and I'm not sure when it began, he was the patron saint. He is the patron saint of parish priests. And then I think it was during the year of the priest um, under the uh, papacy of Pope Benedict XVI when he upgraded that to patron saint of all priests and really heightened his, um, his efficacy and his ministry of reconciliation, which hearing confessions is a key ministry for all priests. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think that was when he was elevated to that. And so he's like held up as the role model for, for priests everywhere, parish priests or otherwise. Um, and it, which is remarkable because he's a small middle nowhere town of ours. And if you read his you know books about him, he was really wasn't doing much the first couple of years. In fact, he was like, I'm not doing much. <laughs> I need to get out of here. I'm, I'm clearly useless. Apparently, you know, uh, people in the town were taking up a petition, signing it to get him out of there. And and he said, let me see this petition, and he signed it himself. <laughs> um, so a lot of what's famous about him came as he was there for like 40-plus years as a pastor, and so we really got to know the people and then really got to minister to him. And a great and holy, humble model for, I think, priests everywhere. Father Nagel. You know, John Vianney is, uh, again, our patron saint, and I've read his—it's kind of a famous biography, at least famous among priests. It's a big, fat old— uh, biography of him and it is very he's very uh i don't know just challenging for priests but also inspiring you know i i hate traveling these days but one of the only things that's going to get me back across the atlantic someday is maybe to go i've never done the pilgrimage to ours and some of the other thing places in france too i've never really done but i would love to go to spend a few days in ours because Again, I, I feel like I've, I've, I know that town just from this book and all the stories about St. John Vianney, not just his confessional record, so to speak, which is really amazing, but also just the idea of trying to transform a town um, you know, and trying to be an instrument of transformation in community. Uh, you know, he shows the possibilities, and so I, I find it not, not depressing that, that my parish and I am not doing as much as he is, but, but a challenge and, a, and also a hopeful sign that, you know, Things can change, and so for me, he's a, a great patron and a great uh, sort of inspiration. Fellows, have you been to ours? I have. It's uh, I, as I understand it, the town is still as large as it was way back when. It, like it didn't kind really of a grow dusty up. kind of uh, it's kind of barren, dusty town. Yeah, it's yeah. not very impressive. If any of our parishioners have ever been to Wash Tuckna in the middle of the state. Um, that's kind of ours, <laughs> only a little more so. Kind of like Tenino if you're from the west side. <laughs> yeah. But I, I guess that's, I, I would be okay with that because I, I do hear that there's a, you know, there's a, a retreat house uh, where priests can stay. But I, I, I'm glad about that. I, I've never been there. Uh, you guys both have. But it's kind of nice. It's not built up and it's not, it, it's, it is kind of the same. I, I, for me, I would find that, say, okay, good. Um, this is... The only only reason that ours is known throughout the world at all is because of John Vianney. And so um, it was nothing before, and he's kind of gone back to that. But um, again, for me, that would make it sort of more authentic. Yeah. Well, for me, that was uh, that is definitely part of its great authenticity is that it hasn't been built up. And, you know, so, so much so like the house where he lived 
and the church, his church, they're still there. They built the basilica on the back end of the church, but you go through his church to get into the basilica, so it's like the facade. And um, so you can really see firsthand, you know, what he was actually working with, the pulpit where he preached, the altar where he celebrated the Mass. Now, because they had to remove that to build the basilica off the, where the altar wall would have been, that's in like a lower chapel of the basilica. And I got to celebrate the Mass there when I was there. Uh, the curator took us down and we got to have the Mass there. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really awesome that, that the house where he lived, the things that he used, the church where he sell, uh, served, they're all still there, and they're part of the history of the town and the and the um, and you know the relics of the church. So, did you go through the tour of his house? Mm-hmm. And okay, you have, Do you remember the? I mean, the one thing just pops out for me. The one thing that popped out was his bed. Mm-hmm. Remember yeah. what about the bed? It was on fire. It was the one that was burned. And you still see the burn marks. You then. still see the burn marks on the bed yeah. where the devil was. You know, talk about spiritual warfare <laughs> coming like right out, right out in front of you as a reality. A bed that caught on fire because yeah. of the devil hating John Vianney that much. Yeah, yeah. So I, what I'd like to know is, because a lot of folks are listening and they're thinking, okay, you made a pilgrimage, Father, uh, Father Lewis, and Father Nagel, you have a devotion uh, informed by your reading and, and prayerful consideration of the life of St. John Vianney. What impact do, does uh, or do things like that, like making a pilgrimage, praying on the site, as well as going deeper, let's call it a spiritual reflective pilgrimage by going into the writings. What concrete impact has that had on your priesthood or on your spiritual life? Oh, well, for me, like, for example, ours, you know, I can read in, in books about him that he lived a very simple and humble life. And, and uh, you know, that's, that, but that can remain in the abstract. That's a thought in my head. And I don't know what that really looks like but then when you go there and you you see well holy cow the story of his bed burning that was real here it is and he only had one set of you know dinner plates they were wood and falling apart or whatever and i don't know it just kind of impacts me in a in a whole new way because i read about it or i heard about it but i'm actually here and i see it and um and uh anyway it just kind of takes it to a new level and then it then it kind of becomes more real to me the whole the whole legend of St. John Vianney is not a legend now. It's, it's, it's history and it's a biography, and, and now I've encountered it. And I know that has an impact on me, and, and uh, uh, I guess it enriches my faith, at least insofar as I, it's not just some abstract or theory filled with a bunch of legendary heroes, but real people who, who suffered in real ways and lived in a real place. And um, it just kind of gives it some... It's, it, it, makes the, it makes my faith that can remain in my head very incarnational. It's, it's, very, of, it's very in the world. Mm-hmm. I guess that was the word I was going to use as well, the, in, the sort of incarnational idea of um, the bodily, physical reality of what you've just read about and considered. I guess, you know, in a, in a sort of heightened way, it would be like going on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land and being able to see where Jesus walked in the Sea of Galilee and the Mount of Olives across from Jerusalem, just to be able to put flesh upon the idea, so to speak, of, of the scriptures as you read them. Uh, in a minor but, but related way, I think, as you go into these pilgrimages to these saint sites, especially if there's something that you're, you're, you're seeing, um, you know, the, the, the environment they lived in or the things they used or, or maybe even their incorrupt body, who knows, whatever it is, it's just like, oh, wow, this, is, this isn't just an idea. This is, this is real. Um, it's historical. And so I think all those, so it's, it's solid, in, you know, literally in terms of the bodily and the carnational aspect. Did either of you fathers hear about this, um, this Eucharistic miracle? I think it was in Mexico where there was um, Eucharistic adoration going on, exposition, and the host itself um, became like a beating heart. And it was actually showing, like the video of it shows that the, the, the host, the, the Blessed Sacrament, appears to be beating like a heart. Did you see that? Have you seen that this video? Is, this is recent. Recent, like in the last week. I think, yeah, and, I, and then I saw, uh, I saw an article, the, uh, I think it's in Guadalajara, the Bishop of Guadalajara, yes, Guadalajara, Guadalajara was saying, that's it. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to be uh, conducting the official investigation like immediately, I think, you, is uh, what the article was saying. I just heard I about that just yesterday. I think somebody came up to me after morning Mass and talked to me about that, and I had not heard anything about it until then. 
this is only the second time somebody's talked to me about it. So I haven't, I know nothing about it at this point. Well, I, you got to watch the video because either there is the most amazing video editor that I've ever seen who can take an iPhone video and edit it to that degree where a portion of the host is, is like a certain, I don't know, a chamber in the heart, a ventricle, whatever you call it, is like beating out and, and, and the rest of it. It's just like, wow, that is stunning. And supposedly one of the, there was a woman who went to communion, I don't know, and somehow in connection to before or after this was happening, and her experience of, the, of receiving the host also involved a sense that the host was beating wow. as she received it. Um, but, you know, who knows? Uh, but I, just the reality of, you talk about the, you know, the, the saints take flesh, right? The incarnating of, of the supernatural, Right, it wasn't just a devotional, ha- ha- hagiographical, uh, um, like oh come on, that never would have happened, kind of thing. Something huh. like that today is, it can have such power. Yeah, wow. So um, I, I was going to ask one last question about uh, Saint John Vianney, uh, but we're actually up against a break, so we're going to we'll come back in a minute with more sound insight. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that. As a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern. I'm with Father Jeff Lewis and Father Kurt Nagel. And we are just benefiting and being blessed by the calendar of saints today and just talking about how these saints can also have a, a very concrete impact on our lives. So, fathers, as I had the blessing of reading, was it Trochu or Tro, what was the... Trochu. Trochu. Um, his, you know, kind of famous biography of St. John Vianney, um, what I one of the things I took from it was oh you read his sermons, the guy was a lion, mm-hmm. he was a lion in the pulpit. Oh my goodness! And <laughs> so the, the Saint John Chrysostom, right? But a lamb in the confessional, mm-hmm. and I, I and then for me the second one was the reality of spiritual warfare. Well, going forth from um, uh, from the seminary in my life, I think the the lasting impact for me was that sense of spiritual warfare that I carry with me in terms of concrete impact on my own spirituality and, and life. But um, did, would somebody, reading like the, the fruitfulness of the ministry of somebody like St. John Vianney influence you regarding how you would speak a message from the pulpit? You might not, by disposition or temperament, naturally speak the kind of message that St. John Vianney would speak, or would it have an impact on how you in, incorporated the sacrament of reconciliation, uh, confession as, uh, an, as a part of how you see your priestly identity and mission. Mm-hmm. You know, reflecting on the, uh, the ministry of reconciliation for St. John Vianney, that has um, impacted how I go about confessions because if you just do the simple math, you know, toward the end of his life, he was hearing, you know, whatever, a, a thousand confessions a day or whatever, or you can calculate maybe how many confessions he was hearing, but, but 16 hours a day, and you know you calculate it down like each each penitent had maybe five minutes total with him, five or six, but in the you know in the pre Vatican II rite of hearing confessions, there's a whole lot more going on than there is now, so that basically constituted um you know the beginning of the rite and then the confession of sins and then the prayers of the penitent and the absolution and then so the point is that you know what was it that he did that drew crowds from all over France? And he just was faithful to the ministry and the sacrament. It wasn't any wise wisdom he was doing because there wasn't enough time for him to do that. He had a whole line out the door. So he just, you know, he just prayed the prayers. He just did the sacrament. And, and how he did that must have been just exuding with the, with the glory and the mercy of God. But he wasn't trying to showboat or add anything of, of his own personality into it. He was just doing the sacrament. So that, um, you know, I, I still offer words of comfort and advice, you know, where, where needed and so on. But 
but our lines are getting long too. And I'm like, I got to just stick with the right here <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and trust that, you know, the, the church, the church gave us the sacrament, the words of it, Christ gave us the sacrament, the church gives us the, you know, the construct of it for a reason that I'm just going to trust that whatever's going on there is, is good enough because it is. And me trying to add to it might actually take away from the experience. But in any event, it really helped me to just kind of simplify my approach to it and just know that, that God is working. I think that John Vinnie has, reading that book and re- reflecting upon his life, I think it does have an impact upon my understanding of what a priest should offer in terms of confession. Obviously, I'm not doing 16 hours of, of confessions in my my parish, but I do offer more than the standard. I, tr- I do say, you know, I, I do need to be in there more than an hour on Saturday afternoon. I have to offer confessions at other times, every morning and other evenings. And there has to be an availability and a, and a possibility they're offered to people. And so I do think sometimes there's that question of how much time can you spend with each person? And, I, it, it, and it depends, you know. But, but I do think it's an impact to me in terms of the availability of the sacrament. I also think just the other point, Tom, that you mentioned there, you haven't talked about it directly. He talked about your, his sermons, but he had this this warfare against dancing and these these yes. bars and stuff. Yep. These, uh, I guess, you, uh, pubs. I don't know what they call them, uh, but drinking establishments in ours. And it was just a it was just a battle. And and he really, and I think sometimes people probably understood a little bit the bars, but the idea of dancing of being so bad. But he was ruthless about this. He said, no, this is, you know, this, today it would probably be, you know, other kind of social media or entertainments that, so for me, it, it challenges, it's not exactly what he's facing, but it's similar to saying, you know, what, what is it that's pop, socially popular, but is really destructive and needs to be spoken about? So I, I do think there's an element there that probably is worth reflecting. Yeah, for sure. I think about, I mean, there's a difference between sin and the near occasion of sin, and maybe we're not appreciating that enough. So right. I'm going to reference something. Father Lewis, uh, you were at Steubenville Northwest, and at one point there was a talk, I think it was given to both the men and the women, and it was about pornography. Do you remember that talk? We happened, were you there for that? I think so. Um, I had to step out a couple of times for hearing confessions or whatever, but I think nice. I remember this talk. Yeah. Okay, so during this talk, one of the distinctions that was made was that when you think of pornography, you tend to think of like X, double X, triple X kind of stuff. And I'm not quoting this guy, but the way that um, my son was talking about it, and, and it generated a conversation a couple times um, at home, which was really good, which was, it's not only that stuff that's all the way out there that is clearly like terrible forms of horrific pornography, but he was talking about the things that lead up to it. He was talking about things that you can read and memes and uh, other kind of short little TikTok videos that aren't like directly pornographic. Uh, maybe they're like immodest or they're the, the, the way that the dancing is going on or the, the movements can stir sexual desire mm-hmm. um, and arouse that sense of sexual pleasure. And he's saying consider that pornography. Do you remember that part of the talk? I do, yeah. He was, you know, pornography is that which is an image or a video or print that the, the, the primary or sole purpose of which is to, um, is to invoke um, uh, sexual desire. And so it could, be, it could be anything. It could be, you know, the people are fully clothed, but they're still moving about, gyrating in a provocative way or whatever. And there's no other reason for that except for, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's some kind of softer version of pornography. But but yeah, still pornography of maybe a different degree. Okay, so this led to a really interesting conversation to li- watch my, like, uh, five of my six oldest kids, right, that were in the room, right? So my oldest 22 down to my 15-year-old talking about this. It's like, hey, wait a minute. There's so many of these little videos that get shared that the girl's pretty and shapely or the guy is hot, buff, or whatever, and they're famous, and they're popular, and their videos are fun or funny. But wait a minute, do these things, are, is there a downhill towards impurity and then all the other sins that flow from that that lead into pornography? Is it a weakening? Is it an occasion of sin? And um, it, was, it was really interesting because they're like, well, if that's a near occasion of sin, then pretty much everything gets cut off. There's not a lot of hmm. extra space in 
um, in the lives of, of young adults and teenagers and high schoolers to give over attention to these very, very popular channels that have tens of millions of followers. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, Father Nagel, do you think that's a, um, a corresponding kind of uh, uh, situation? I think yeah, I think this is a great example, um, and also the whole idea of a virtue of modesty has just kind of disappeared. Uh, but you, that's you just enunciated or articulated, excuse me, um, really the basis for that. And I would agree with your kids who are saying that I would suspect that that whole economy. So let's face it, there's money to be made here. That the whole economy of the environment, social environment is based in you know, large part in this, this whole idea of eliciting lust and, you know, again, sex sells, right? And, and so I do think the idea, okay, if I'm going to take out the videos, music, et cetera, that one of the main purposes was to elicit this, uh, it'd be kind of a barren landscape in, lots, in large swaths of popular culture. So I do think the idea, the radicality of, of John Vianney's day was telling these people they couldn't dance at these um, saints festivals, for instance. Again, talking about the calendar of saints. It was supposed to be celebrating the saint, and yes, we, we bring in all this other stuff with it, with the dancing. And so I think probably an equivalent would be, okay, this isn't what we think of as pornography, but it is sexualized uh, media. And it, it does lead to this. So I think there is probably a pretty good correspondence between the 19th century French village problems and the 21st century American suburb problem. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I don't know if I have a, a clear answer here, but there's a reason why my kids, uh, my, you know, my going into junior year in high school son does not have a phone. Sophomore does not have a phone. The one that's graduating high school has a phone, but without Safari, without TikTok, without Instagram, without access to these things on her phone. So it's basically like an iPod, but she can make phone calls and text. And it's, uh, it's not perfect. But then, you know, the battle, the battle, the battle is that it's not just what you do in your own home with your kids, right, right. but it's their friends. Mm-hmm. And if they don't have friends that are on the same page, then you've you've kind of lost the battle before you even started. Right. Uh, and then if the parents aren't monitoring what's going on in the home, and again, it's all these downstream problems. Talk about something that is ruining spiritual lives, sexual sense of, uh, of peaceful development of one's sexual identity, and leading them into bondage and, and darkness. There it is. I mean, that is a... That is a modern day. We need we need some John Vianneying going on here from the pulpits. So fathers, you're up, okay? I've condemned social media in all of its aspects many times, Tom and Homeless. <laughs> uh, yep. Facebook is of the devil. Yeah. I do have a cell phone, uh, <laughs> well, a flip phone. Yep. But I, I do think you're, I think you're right about it in the sense of it takes, you know, well, sometimes it takes a village to raise a child, but sometimes it's the whole village that corrupts the child too. Right. So it's not just the family. It's, it's, and I think that was the dynamic with John Vianney, that, that there was this social dynamic there of if one person doesn't go to the dance, that's a real problem. How do you get it so, though, that most of them don't go to the dance? So it starts to behave, the change of dynamic is really hard. Yep, yes. Well, we won't solve that today, um, except to say that uh, there's much, there's, this is, it's almost like you can't talk about it enough. And so parents, grandparents, just be aware do not give your kid a smartphone. Give your kid a wise phone if you have to. A wise phone is actually a type of phone. Look it up. I don't get paid any money, but a wise phone allows your kid to get map, clock, pictures, text, and phone. That's it. No access to the internet. No, none, none, none. No access to social media apps or any apps at all. It comes as a lockdown phone, text, calls. You can get map directions, a clock if you need it, a pictures and video if you want to take it, and a text. That's it. That is it. Wise phone. So, um, anyways. Okay. <sighs> breathe, breathe. <laughs> okay, so today it's on Insight. I am with Father Kurt Nagel, Father Jeff Lewis. We're talking about uh, the, great sal- the great calendar of saints and feast days that we have. And uh, we began with last Thursday, the day in which we are recording this program, the 4th St. John Vianney. Well, the next day, the 5th, is the dedication of St. Mary Major's Basilica in Rome. Okay. All right, fathers, little trivia question here. So the dedication of St. Mary Major, the feast day was on the day of the dedication. Okay. What happened 
that was uh, like a almost supernatural surprise on August the 5th in Rome on the dedication of St. Mary Major. Do you know what it was? I do. You do, do. Do you, Father? I think so. It's a weather it's, event. It's, a weather event. It's, you it's got it. It snowed in Rome. It yeah. snowed in Rome. In August. In August. Let me tell you, August is like 95 degrees. It does not snow in Rome in August. So, um, anyways, let's let's go with there. Father Nagel, why don't you talk first about St. Mary Major? Have you been there? How does a feast like this impact you? And then even we'll go into how churches can have a devotional impact or an impact right. in the life of faith. You know, I, I have been to Rome several times and been to Mary Major. I've not celebrated Mass there, but it's of one of the four major basilicas. And in some ways, it's kind of the, the least known, I think. Um, you have St. Peter's, St. Paul's. You have these great apostles buried there under the altars there. And you even have John Lateran, which is the Cathedral of Rome. The Pope's, you know, the chair is there. Mary Major, though, in some ways, again, doesn't have that high a profile. But in some ways, I kind of like it in the sense of it's, it is the quieter in some sense. But it's this beautiful church. And furthermore, it's just so old, the building itself. So the historian me says, this is an ancient Roman imperial building. It hasn't been rebuilt like St. Paul's and St. Peter's. The, the, the current basilicas are fairly new if, if we talk about history uh, of Rome. But Mary Major does date, date back to the time of the Caesars. And so you're, you're in this building that's just, and it feels, it feels old to me. And so if, if just the, the strength and the length of the faith is so very concrete and um, incarnational, if you will, in that church. So for me, it, it does have a, a beauty of its own. Yeah. I, I like St. Mary Major very much. I've been to Rome uh, three times, and two of those times where I actually stayed in Rome was very nearby um, uh, St. Mary Major, the church. And so I was able to um, to visit there a lot. It's got a, a, a very unique major relic. It's got the um, the crib of the manger of the Christ child underneath the main altar, or, you know, what they say it is. Who couldn't verify these things? But but it's there in a, in a beautiful reliquary. And um, and another interesting detail about the church that you look up at the ceiling, and it's, it's a detailed uh, ceiling with a regular pattern of, you know, kind of floral designs. And they're all uh, tinged with gold, like a gold leaf, and that gold represents. So I've heard represents some of the some of the very first gold that was brought back from the New World from Columbus's first expedition, and as a gift to uh, the church. And this is what the Pope did with it: melted down to to give honor to Our Lady in the church. And um, I thought that was pretty cool. So that's that's just how old the gold is, let alone how old the building is. And um, anyway, yeah, it's a, it's a great, and it's a unique uh, look on the outside, too. A lot of the other basilicas, the major basilicas, you know, there's one central dome. This has a, a got a two kind of twin domes, uh, not above the main altar, but above the, the, uh, the transepts. And so just, it's very distinctive, I think, in that way, at least for me. It's uh, got a unique look to it. Um, and it's, uh, it's in a wonderful place, Rome. There's, uh, it's uh, the ending of the pilgrimage of the uh, Corpus Christi procession that the Pope does from John Lateran and then ends at St. Uh, Mary Major. So if you're there on Corpus Christi, it's, it's a huge part of that celebration, too. I, I didn't know that about the gold uh, on, the, on the ceiling. That's, that's really cool. That, uh, that, that's, wow, that's really powerful. Uh, there's a statue there of the Blessed Mother that I find unique. And it's one of my very favorite spots in all of Rome. I love St. Mary Major. Again, I had the blessing of living there for three years. And um, I, I have a tenderness for the St. Mary Major. When you go in, it's very sparse. At least when, at least when I was there, they didn't have pews. It mm-hmm. was open. It was just open. And there's a statue. You come down. Uh, if you walk in, it's uh, on the right side. If you're coming in the front. And... Um, it's, it's Our Lady, Queen of Peace. And she is sitting in a chair, and Jesus is a little boy standing on her leg, like standing on her leg, and she has her hand up. Like her hand is stretched all the way out, and her hand has a stop, a stop motion. And for me, I don't see many statues of the blessed mother where she is active like that where she's like asserting something like peace involves a message from heaven and, 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 and a spiritual engagement from heaven that's saying stop 
And I, I just, I find that very powerful. Yeah. I don't remember that statue, but it's, that sounds interesting. Yeah. yeah. So there we go. Um, and that road, that sort of tree-lined road that goes from St. John Lateran to St. Uh, Mary Major, that was just classic, mm-hmm. right? So when I would, friends would come and visit, I would take them on the sort of the tour of Rome. We would start at St. John Lateran and then come down the street come down the tree-lined street, because it's, it's a short enough walk mm-hmm. to end up at St. Mary Major. But here's another trivia question, fathers. As you exit St. John Lateran, you have the beautiful baptistry mm-hmm. right there, uh, if you're coming out the front door, around to the left. But if you go across the street to the right, there's this much lesser-known building that has another devotional um, artifact to it. Do you know what that is? Is that the Santa Scala? Yes, yeah. yes. Father Nagel, have you been to that? I have, yeah. And, and so I've, what is that? For folks who don't know what the Santa Scala is, what is that? Well, as, as I recall, so, so correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's a series of steps you go up. It's like the ladder um, going up. Is that true? That you, yep. And you do it on your knees? Yes, uh, you do. You go up yeah. on your knees, and they put wood over the actual um, set of steps, which are made of, I don't know, marble or, or uh-huh. some kind of stone, and it's from the Praetorium. Yeah. Yeah, that those are the steps that Jesus would have walked up oh, when he yeah. came in to, to in front of Pilate. Okay. And so you're kneeling your way up the steps. Which uh, is painful, by the way. It is painful, <laughs> but it's on wood. It's not even on the stone. Right. <laughs> um, but oh, that that's the closest thing I've been to uh, to the Holy Land in terms of like being where Jesus walked is the holy uh, this holy staircase uh, in, in Rome. So that's a it's lesser known. And, and you tend to have people there that it's less like the crowd taking pictures, and it's more the devout who yeah. are entering into it. Yeah. So. yeah. Last time I was in Rome, sadly, it was uh, uh, that staircase was closed for some kind of renovation, so they had a, another staircase where you could do the, <laughs> the devotion, but it wasn't the stairs. It wasn't quite the same, but anyway. <laughs> That's a Romans for you. Yeah. <laughs> they charged their, their 8,000 lira to get in, too. So. <laughs> All right, we're up against a break. When we come back, more sound insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kernan with Father Kurt Nagel, Father Jeff Lewis. We're talking about feast days on the calendar of saints and calendar of feasts in the month of August. We're making our way towards Monday. We're doing all right. We've got two down. Uh, we've uh, gone through St. John Vianney last Thursday and the feast of uh, the dedication of St. Mary Major last Friday. And then on Saturday, we had the Feast of the Transfiguration of the Lord. What is that feast, Father Lewis? That's what commemorates the transfiguration of Jesus on top of Mount Tabor before the eyes of Peter, James, and John, and Moses and Elijah appear to him. So it's showing that Jesus is the fulfillment and the culmination of the law and the prophets, and um, you know, giving them a glimpse of the glorified Lord as he would appear in glory truly after the resurrection. So when you think about, let's call it, like we meditate on the transfiguration in the Luminous Mysteries, and it's just obviously a fundamental event in salvation history. Um, fathers, I'd love to hear how that event like, impacts your spiritual life when you think about it. And again, you can draw on what great saints or spiritual writers have said, or just in, in your own meditation and reflection on the transfiguration of the Lord. Father Nagel. First of all, before I say this, I just have to go back. And the fact that we're doing pretty well by getting through two days, uh, (laughs) we're getting close to the end here. I think it's true, relatively speaking, but in the big picture, it's kind of pathetic. Father, watch how quickly we can cover St. Dominic and St. Teresa. In about one minute, I'll give you 30 seconds each to cover those two. It's not really true. (laughs) Anyway, for me, the transfiguration... Two things come up to me right away. One of them is, this was the name, oh, first off, Mount Tabor, I've been to Mount Tabor a couple times in the Holy Land, and going up there, it's, um, I don't know if I had, it was impressive there, I don't know if that was, you know, it's a, going up is a scary thing with these taxis to going up and back and forth all trying to get up that mountain, but it's an impressive place and impressive view, but I didn't associate it too much with the, the actual transfiguration itself, devotion, and, and uh, an event. But I do more, the, I went on a couple of retreats with the Carthusians in Vermont, testing the vocation for solitude and the hermetic life. And it's called the Charter House of the Transfiguration. And it's up on this mountain in Vermont. It's this beautiful Mount Equinox. 
And so I associate it, and they obviously decided, desired to have it associated with this idea of uh, contemplating the Lord in his majesty, um, his divinity up at the top of a mountain. And so I've always, this feast has always been, for me, associated with, again, these wooded mountains. And, and back in my last parish, we, the youth group, we, we would go up, we would climb, go hiking up a mountain and celebrate Mass at the top of a mountain on the Feast of Transfiguration. It's always in summer, you know, youth group can go and do it. So for me, that's what I associate it with, is just going, climbing the mountain myself and celebrating Mass at the top. So what about you, Father Lewis? Well, okay, I'll tell you, the Transfiguration of the Lord as a feast day, even though it's a feast of the Lord, used to not really strike, strike me as much of a big deal compared to others until I went to the Holy Land. And it, it really, you know, when you can see the Bible in its actual geography, like I heard this and I was like, oh, that's nice and pious, but it's true. And, and part of the reason why is because, first of all, you know, we call a lot of things mountains, but uh-huh. you know, Mount Spokane here in Spokane <laughs> is, is a slightly higher peak than the peaks that are around it. But Mount Tabor is more like, um, for people on the east side, you might know about Steptoe Butte. It is, you got the Palouse, and then all of a sudden you got this yeah. peak that just rises out of it. And that's like Mount Tabor. And Mount Tabor, I think, is like 1,500 feet above sea level. But if I'm not mistaken, the base of it, you're still actually slightly below sea level. So it actually rises higher than 1,500 feet from the base because of where it is relative to sea level. So it really is impressive when you see it in, in, in person. And then uh, I started to wonder as we were going up there, well, what is the big deal about why Jesus would choose this mountain to reveal his glory? It seems to be completely out of the way of where his main kind of traffic was. And then um, it occurred to me that the valley that kind of goes around mm-hmm. it is called the Kishon Valley. And in the Kishon Valley, there's, um, they've got all these archaeological sites, which are called uh, tells. And a tell is like a man-made mountain. If you, a city gets destroyed, you bury it, you build another city. It gets destroyed, you bury it, you build another city. So you can actually cut straight down and find like four or five uh, civilizations stacked one on top of the other. And the Hebrew word for tell is har with a hard a h a r and the most the largest and most significant of these tells is a place called megiddo mm-hmm. or har megiddo or armageddon and in the book of revelation this valley this place armageddon is where the final battle between good and evil will take place and so geologically or geographically speaking i was thinking well no wonder this is where jesus chose to reveal his glory at the transfiguration it's like he's kind of saying to the powers of evil I've already won. You can middle about if you want, but here I am in glory. So, nice try, evil. Nice try. Like he's already kind of rubbing it in that he's that he's Lord and that he's won. I, you know. So anyway, that's what I kind of got out of it. And now the Transfiguration is one of my very favorite feast days to preach on because I love telling that that story of what I kind of saw there. That's a great story. I haven't heard that. So maybe we'll hear it on Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> so I, um, I I have not been there. I have heard that it's an arduous climb, but what I've taken from it more is uh, the way in which certain spiritual writers in our tradition have have related the transfiguration with the entire spiritual life. That the expectation is that our spiritual life begins when we're personally called by the Lord to accompany Him, the way that Peter, James, and John were personally called out to follow Him, and that that following would involve the arduous path up. It was going to be tiring, difficult. Don't expect it to be easy. It's going to be hard. But through all of that dying to self, you're going to reach that place where, in fact, the encounter with God will break through and you'll encounter his glory. So that for me has been, I would say, the, the principal way that I've um, been blessed by this uh, feast day and by this mystery is by reflecting on what do I expect of this spiritual journey, not just a bunch of nice, soft, um, you know, misty experiences. But no, this is a hard path to walk. But at the end, there's a glimpsing His glory. So, yeah. wow. so anything you want to say about that, Father uh, Nagel, or we're going to move forward? I d- I had had some uh, what Father Lewis talked about the history. 
of the surrounding areas of Mount Tabor. I, I did, that was what I guess I was kind of thinking about. I was looking out at all of that, and you can't see, it's a, it is a stunning view because it really does just come out, of, the mountain just pops out of nowhere. And it's not only the future, but there's you know, battles on the plain throughout the Old Testament as well. And so it, it does, it's just filled with history. You can look around and see the Old Testament uh, from every direction. So I, I do agree that there's, it's an awesome spot in that way. Nice. I just want to say that Father Nagel just used time away from us going forward. I just wanted to say that out loud. We would have gotten to, to maybe all the way to August 7th. We would have moved. We would have been pressing right through. So back in a minute with more It's my fault. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Carnum with Father Nagel and Father Lewis, and we are talking about Calendar of Saints and Feast Days, and we have made it to August the 8th. St. Dominic. We're jumping over St. Cajetan. Unless, uh, Father Nagel, you want to say something? I know historically he's of interest. <laughs> but far be but it from me I to w- take any more time. No way. So let's go. <laughs> well, let's go to today's feast day. Folks are listening on the 8th. And so St. Dominic, I, gosh, there's so much to say, but we'll let you, Father Nagel, we'll give you first shot at St. Dominic and his place in your life or in spirituality or however you want to talk about him? Well, for me, St. Dominic is, uh, has mostly been an impact, not because of himself, but his order, Dominicans. I've been blessed with a number of uh, connections with Dominicans. I, I explore the Dominican vocation myself and my discernment, and there's a lot that I, again, it would be one of, the, one of the possible, if I could say, if, if I could create my own life and my own um, vocation that it be might in that direction it didn't god didn't work it out that way but here in the archdiocese of seattle we have wonderful houses by the university of washington i've just been again blessed with so many connections with the dominicans themselves that uh, that's what i associate is just the the fruit of his vocation yeah similarly for me i um i mean i appreciate the saint very much of course you know you know you know the contemporary of saint francis and they start the first two great mendicant orders um, not together. Dominic was in Spain and Francis in Italy, but but um, like Father Nagel, you know, I've been kind of surrounded by the Dominican um, spirituality in one aspect or another for a while. Like I went to a seminary in in Washington D.C. Uh, at the Catholic University of America, and right next to our house of formation was the Dominican House of Studies. So we had lots of interaction with them for liturgies and and other things. And I took a couple of classes there that would the credits would transfer over and so on. So that was kind of the beginning, and then my first um, assignment as a pastor was uh, the the the, main, the chief of three parishes where I was, the Saint Mary of the Rosary in Chuila, and uh, one of the statues in that in that church is Mary holding the infant Jesus, uh, giving the rosary to Saint Dominic. So there's that um, attachment or that connection between Saint Dominic and the rosary, and here in my parish is called Saint Mary of the Rosary, and as it happens, um, I didn't have we don't have um, Dominican priests in the Spokane Diocese, but we have Dominican sisters, and um, there's a branch of the Dominican sisters from that came over from Germany like a like a century ago, um, that formed a you know settled and formed a house in Kettle Falls, way north of way north of town, almost Canada, and from there they they founded a couple of hospitals, including um, the hospital that was in Chuila and um, Holy Family Hospital here in Spokane, and now they're all under the auspices of. Uh, uh, the Sisters of Providence, but you know, I'm, so I'm, I was surrounded by Dominican sisters and get a, get to minister uh, with them as we care for the the sick in the hospital, but also for them as their pastor. And so I was kind of just surrounded on all sides by by Saint Dominic and his progeny, kind of um, you know, encroaching upon my life in these various ways. And uh, that's kind of been the the influence of of the Dominican um, Dominican spirituality in my life. So for me, I could go on and on about St. Catherine of Siena. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be my, even more than like a, a love for St. Dominic, uh, would be for St. Catherine, a Dominican. But um, uh, quick story, Bologna, there's a big Bened- uh, big Dominican, um, like a house, like a, I don't know if it's the mother house, but it's one of the larger places where Dominicans are. And um, my brother and I happened to be there. Um, we were uh, touring Italy and... Um, we went in, we went to Mass, um, we started talking with some of the Dominicans that were there, and they said, come back here, come back here. So they took us uh, behind 
uh, to an, uh, an area that was private for the Dominicans themselves, and they pointed to a spot on the ground. And they said, and there was a plaque there. This is where St. Dominic died. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah, so wow. the actual spot where he sort of lay on the ground and passed from this earth was right there. And that was like, oh, wow. Yeah. So it was a really powerful like, moment of encounter with, uh, with Dominic by being graced with, we didn't even know it was there, graced with that coming close to the place where he departed from this earth. So wow. that, was, that was my powerful St. Dominic memory. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Boy, you know, we are going so fast. I'm going to have to slow us down for this. <laughs> uh, we got the last one, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. We have uh, two and a half minutes to talk about St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, uh, more of a contemporary saint. Right. And um, Father Nagel, I'm going to let you, I know you have a love for history, so, and I think you also have a sense of devotion to St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, if I'm not cor- incorrect. Well, yeah, as you say, this contemporary, modern philo- philosopher, really, uh, obviously a brilliant woman, um, a convert, uh, she raised Jewish, although in sort of a non, non-religious family, and again, died at Auschwitz, and so the famous, um, just, just a famous saint of the 20th century and, and suffering in, this, in, in that century. But for me, I, I, what I remember most about her is what brought her to the faith, at least in, in part, was reading the works of Teresa of Avila. And she became a Carmelite. And, and so, but just to, be, to, to read the, the, the books, of, she was reading one of the works, I think it was Interior Castle, one night, and she spent almost the whole night reading it. And when she was done, she said, you know, that's true. She just got this, this, this conviction that what Teresa was saying was true. And that's really the way the soul is. And I, I read that book in the same way. I, it just it seemed, that's, this is the, really the way the soul works. And so it's very powerful. So I, I can kind of relate to, Teresa Benedict in that way. So in those ways, I, I see a connection uh, in our own lives. Yeah. I'm not a, a philosopher much myself, but I appreciate her contribution and her brilliance in philosophy. And and um, I think it's had impact in JP too, St. John Paul II, and his own philosophical upbringing. And um, they were, you know, they were contemporaries. I think she was an older contemporary, and then she died in Auschwitz, as we said. But, but uh, more than her brilliance and more than, you know, these things, you know, in the end, you know, the, what mattered to her the most was was giving her life to Jesus, even if that meant death. And like all the martyrs, you know, they could be the simplest people or the most brilliant people, or the most important people, quote unquote. But that's what it comes down to: Did I give my life to Christ? And um, and I, I find just that inspiring. And under the most horrific conditions, you know, for her. I'll just say uh, two quick words. The first is that if you haven't read anything by Saint Teresa Benedict of the Cross, find something. She is so confident that the love of God wins in the end, that the love of Christ and his redemptive power wins in the end. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful and very consoling. And the second is her method of writing. She's a phenomenologist. Mm-hmm. And so I love reading um, authors who are drawing upon that methodology, phenomenology, and that's St. John Paul II. Um, and so if for the modern man, for the contemporary person, uh, phenomenology has woven its way in enough where reading spiritual authors who draw upon that, I think is particularly um, uh, uh, able to be accessed. So that's my thought. So, All right, well, we are up against the end of our program, and we got through all the saints. I just, you know, not a surprise. Incredible. Not a surprise. <laughs> well, Father Nagel, Father Lewis, thank you so much for uh, being with me today. Uh, join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.